Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hey, this week's episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero. For my money, the best pizza you can eat in Guelph, Ontario a proud independent family business run by a punk rocker, Trocadero only uses a rich array of fresh ingredients cut by hand and homemade dough made daily, all baked to perfection inside of a stone oven. It's gourmet panzerotti, calzones, wings, salads, garlic bread, breadsticks, and oh man, the pizza, the pizza. Personally, I like the gourmet Domateo with goat cheese, artichoke, roasted red pepper, mushrooms. I sub out the turkey breast for eggplant, but that's just me. Wash the whole thing down with a brio? Man, I am getting hungry just talking about this. Call Pizza Trocadero at 519-829-2444. Visit them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph and online at trocaderoguelph.ca. T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. Creative Control with Vish Khanna. My chest cold has taken a slight turn for the worse, and I have a throat infection. It's not strep. Doctor says I'm okay, just a throat infection. What this means is I'm not going to be talking very much here at the beginning of the show. I hope you're well. I just want to tell you that Doug Paisley is on the show today. Did this interview, uh, I think, at the end of January or something like that. And it was a good one. I was very happy with it. Sounds great. Use the FaceTime. You gotta start doing stuff like that more, I think. And you're gonna hear a new song from uh, Doug's record today. Uh, the record is Strong Feelings, and it's a great one. And I hope you enjoy the show. So, that's all my throat and I can muster for now. Hopefully, we're both feeling better soon. Enjoy the show. Talk to you soon. On Thursday, April 3rd, the E-Bar welcomes the Peter Elkis Band and Harlan Pepper to Guelph. Elkis is celebrating the 10th anniversary of his solo debut, Party of One, available on vinyl for the first time and only at live shows. Harlan Pepper just released their acclaimed new album, Take Out a 20 and Live Life to the Fullest, available now via Six Shooter Records. This all-ages licensed show begins at 9 p.m. And if you bring a non-perishable donation for the Guelph Food Bank, 
you'll save $2 off your admission. Peter Elkis Band and Harlan Pepper at the E-Bar, located at 41 Quebec Street on Thursday, April 3rd. For more info, visit vishkana.com. The E-Bar is not a fully accessible venue. a very gifted singer, songwriter, and musician based in Toronto and specializing in country and western tunes. His latest album is called Strong Feelings and beyond containing some lovely love songs, it features a glorious guest list including Mary Margaret O'Hara, Garth Hudson, Emmett Kelly, Colin Stetson, and members of Blue Rodeo, Zeus, Bahamas, The Weather Station, $100, and many, many more. Strong Feelings is available now via No Quarter Records, and here now to discuss it further is the great Doug Paisley. Hi, Doug. How's it going? It's good. Thank you. It's nice to have you uh, on the line now. We're using uh, FaceTime. Yes. Now, FaceTime. Yeah, it's a r- <laughs> rare occurrence for me, but I'm enjoying it. It's not bad. We can actually see it if you want. We can look at one another. Yeah. Yeah, you're looking good today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I need a haircut, I think. My son and I. Might go to the barber <laughs> and get a haircut soon. I think it's a little. I feel like it's a little long. You don't look as hairy as you normally do. No, I I actually was on uh, Canada AM this morning at six AM. Oh, and I knew that my parents and my godmother were going to be watching, so I went and got a haircut the other day. Oh well, that's kind of a shame. I that's <laughs> a, a totally nice haircut. I just think that when parental or familial expectations dictate your appearance, it's always. It's always trouble. Like I've been kind of unemployed. Like I lost my like job, my full time job, and I've been kind of trying to piece things together. And my mom recently suggested, and and when I say recently, like a few times, that I should <laughs> I should dye my hair because I'm pretty salt <laughs> salt and pepper, right? Oh man, yeah. And I mean, she she's really she thinks it's an appearance thing. She thinks like I might be having trouble finding work because I look old. Um, I don't. I I disagree. I mean, she would know best, but I I think that it's. It, I think it looks good. And I mean, you know, they they you, you know, as long as you always know that their heart's in the right place. I mean, I haven't yielded on a lot of things, so the fact that I'm yielding on a bit of my hair, I have no problem with that. Yeah. No. I mean, it's hair. I mean, I just think I got hair. I might as well just do whatever. You know, some parents are like they would probably lament the loss of their son's hair you know or a daughter you know people lose exactly their hair. i have a, they, they should be happy i have a full head of hair what more could you what more could they ask for it's salt know? and pepper i'm the you know i like to say i'm the brown george clooney but i not everyone it's, agrees no it's a it's distinguished it's I, uh i think so but you look you look great and i'm glad we're using facetime now this was a slight let's just be honest it was a slight ordeal to get this going because you, i have <laughs> i have some uh non uh, electronic issues with uh, electronics. 
non-electronic issue. You you have issues. That's not. That's actually. I think you're distorting the facts. I think you just have electronic issues. You have issues with technology. I do. I have personal. I have personal problems with technology. I'm not as excited about the uh, the rising wave as other people are. Now you say rising wave. I feel like we're already all immersed in the in the wave. I, I feel like you. I mean, we all use all of these things. You're someone who doesn't use Skype or or Google Hangout or whatever. Like you're not using these things on the regular, right? You they frighten and and confuse you. Well, I think I understand them, and yeah, but I guess they do. They do kind of bring out the paranoia in me. But I mean, yeah, but I am. I, I may be like a couple waves behind. That's fine. I mean, it's not for everyone. I did a thing in January where I took, I tried desperately to take all of social media off. Like I tried not to post anything because I was starting to get really grossed out by myself. Like I'm just constantly like posting links to things I did and like telling people to read them or listen to them. And I'm like, what am I doing with my, why, why am I doing this? You know? And I mean, I don't know if you are, are you averse to that kind of self? Because a lot of this stuff that you're averse to the underlying aspect of it is kind of self-promotion, like, you know, mm -hmm. putting yourself out there. Yeah, I am. Uh, I, I am kind of averse to it in a way. Um, it's uh, I guess it's partly like a, a self-consciousness. And I think it's also partly, you know, grappling with what my real role is, you know, uh, if, if I am going to have a public life and. You know, I think it's very easy to just say, well, I wrote the songs and here they are and I'll leave me alone. I mean, I know there's more to it than that, but I guess I really, I feel like that's the thing I really work hard on. And beyond that, I question how much I really have to contribute in terms of daily updates and stuff like that, you know, because uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't find a lot of the other stuff that interesting. You know, I feel like my songs are worthwhile to put out in my music, but Everything else is pretty, I feel pretty insular about it and, you know, pretty private about it. Not in a protective way, but, you know, not entirely in a protective way, but I just kind of feel like it's not that interesting to other people. It's a kind of self-preservation. I think it's that too, yeah. 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 I mean, when you say everything else, that kind of brings us to what we're doing right now. We're having a, an interview, a conversation about, about you and your work, and uh, I assume that based on what you just said, even this aspect of your you know persona if you will you're a little averse to like are you a little wary or weary of doing things like this no i actually no i don't feel like i'm cagey with interviews and and or very like i don't feel like i really restrict what i say i mean i uh when it's especially when it's conversational i actually really enjoy it you know and when it's stuff to do with music i mean i'm so interested in music so i love talking about music and uh so when, when it's sort of on that tact, I actually, I really appreciate it. And, you know, you can't lose sight of the fact that it's pretty cool that people want you to essentially talk about yourself. I mean, we all need that in some ways, you yeah. know. Yeah, and I mean, the stuff that we've been talking about in terms of social media platforms, it is really all about yourself in a way. And I mean, mm -hmm. you can, even if you're constantly linking uh, to really important social and political aspect you know like stories or whatever that's still an extension of you all of this is just an extension of ourselves and at some point i recently just was like i am uncomfortable now um mm -hmm. i'm a little bit like why am i why do i think i'm so interesting that i need to tell everyone what i'm doing all the time so i'm trying to and i did pretty good 
Uh, as we're speaking now, it's the end of January, and I only recently retweeted a couple of things. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> I've been gone. I was also just curious, like, I don't know if you monitor this. It sounds like you probably don't, but we a lot of uh, the stuff is like, who follows you? Who unfollows you? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And I find this so tedious and tiresome now. You know, I came from a, a culture, or like, you know, I came up in this culture, and we're all, we're supposed to be a little fixated on metrics and i feel like everything is so so numerically based all the time statistically based i can't yeah i'm tired of it i'm a little tired of it yeah i mean i think it's hard too because i think we're like we with a lot of this stuff we really are this bridge generation you know and i don't want to get you know do like a douglas copeland talk or anything like that but i mean you know we don't we have to grapple with it like people who are 20 years younger than us don't have to grapple with it and you know for better or for worse yeah. You know, but at the same time, I mean, like I actually like I, I really like following Ringo Starr on Twitter, for instance, because oh. like it's he he just he just seems to be having a lot of fun with it. And there's like loads of emoticons in his tweets, you know, and <laughs> he just, you know, as always, he kind of seems to be really enjoying the amazing things that happened to him in his life. So I think when you can find its its purpose and its usefulness, it's it's good to be comfortable with it. But it definitely is a rabbit hole. And I think it can, you know, you can develop habits around it that are you got to keep in check. No, no, yeah, I think there's plenty of things to enjoy about it. I just think that uh, it's like a weird, like I feel like our, uh, everything has sort of become a following like a weird privatized model of of how like success is me- like everything is measured, right? So like you could do a thing, like I'd, I'd say like ten years ago, you could write a story, you could put a song out, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't its success wouldn't be based or its momentum wouldn't necessarily be based on views counts it would just be based on its, mm-hmm. its own yeah. merits and you're as an artist you're kind of probably going through this you know people are probably telling you like whoa doug like a thousand people looked at that youtube video and like mm-hmm. n- now you're forced to process that information daily probably again i don't know how insulated you are from that stuff but i that's what i find like i'm just like oh wow a uh, hundred thousand people listen to my podcast and then i'm like yeah why do i care about that like what, what i mean i should care right it but I also, I don't know. I'm just like, ugh. It's, it's too much like everything has to be sold out all the time. And if it's not. <laughs> but I mean, that is really cool. Like that that many people are listening to it. I mean, that's something to, to be glad of and to appreciate. But like you say, you don't want to, you know, put too qualitative a judgment on it one way or the other. You know, I mean, I think there's like I, I grapple with this when I get feedback, you know, because it. Like I, I used to be really careful about reading reviews because I, I don't really have a very thick skin about it and I don't have a really big sort of public life. So it really affected me if something negative, even if it might have been totally true. And now I've learned that I just don't read any of it, you know, like I don't I don't read any of that stuff because I find that in some ways the good stuff kind of affects me as much as the the bad stuff does. You know, it, it distorts in some ways what you're trying to do. You know, but I think for what I'm trying to do, I'm not really trying to navigate something more public. But the people that do navigate it and are able to sort of cut through a lot of it, I really appreciate that. So, like, if I were to send you, say, we have a nice conversation or 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 whatever, and it turns into an interview piece, and someone like mm-hmm. me sends it to you, you would probably not read it. No, I wouldn't. Right. It's not because I, I mean I really appreciate you doing it, but I just. I just don't think I'm part of that process. I don't think it's for me, you know? Mm-hmm. And do you, like, in this case, would you listen back to an interview? Like, would you be bother to... No. Yeah. No, okay. like, I've I've sort of gotten weird about it. Like, I, 
like dude, we just did this taping thing today and it's like i know i will never see it you know and the canada am thing you won't watch it y- yeah because i just i feel like you know i'm not i'm, I'm not so besotted with recognition and so on that it's overtaking me but in terms of my reaction to it i just feel like i'm sort of always trying to get away from it or on the run from it right and it's interesting that you're talking kind of about external factors like i assume that you read something good or bad about yourself um and it might have the same impact that say your record label is like hey man like uh this single or this album sold a lot of copies is there some way to replicate that or, or, or take something away from that experience that you can kind of use going forward. And I, I gather that you're like, ah, all of that is external to what I really want to be doing. Yeah. I mean, I'm not like some pure savant, you know, who's just drawing <laughs> things out of ether. I mean, obviously you're self-aware, but yeah. I, I do find like, I think that was part of one of the things with this album was the challenge for me was to get away with, to get away from what I thought, I was supposed to be or what I thought people liked about what I was doing um, just to get away from that idea, basically. Now, what what to you, if you can kind of crystallize what you think that idea of you was versus what you're doing or what you've done with this album, can you kind of articulate that in some way? Well, I mean, it, in some ways it comes down to songs, right? Like people, like a lot of people really like certain songs and then you go on tour. So you play those songs over and over again, you know, and then the mechanics of it starts to get into your head, especially as the meaning of it sort of gets further and further away in terms of the original meaning. And, and then that can influence when you go to write another song, you know, and, um, you know, just I, I often like I really appreciate when people say really nice things. It's I'm so lucky, you know, that people, first of all, want to listen and comment at all. And then when it's good. But I don't identify with a lot of it. So I don't know. I just, uh, I, uh, it's hard to say. I just kind of, um, I, it, it's a weird thing. It's, it's just kind of counterintuitive for how I, how I try and write songs, you know? Like I really try and just be playing guitar and playing music and delving deeper and deeper into it. And hopefully in some sort of a spontaneous or an inspired state. And this stuff does start to permeate that, and it really compromises that environment. And that environment, something that I really value. But I mean, like, there's the 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 external consider like the external impact. They can that that can come from, as you say, you've you're trying to just uh, separate yourself from any kind of written or whatever, like just any media that you've been involved in. You feel less, and you you just separate yourself from it, but. Same time, if you're going to go play live, and you say like you play these songs over and over and over again, at some point you're going to notice a pattern in terms of how it, these things are received, and mm-hmm. and then that can maybe dictate, oh, you know, like that that one that 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 song idea really resonates with people. This one doesn't, so maybe I should uh, maybe I should carry through with the things that that's working. I mean, do you, mm-hmm. is that your outlook, or is it more like, huh? Why didn't this thing work? Maybe I can fine tune this. Maybe I can try to fix it for the next for another song. Well, I think in some ways it's that the excitement and what's stimulating about it comes from being on edge a little bit. And one way that you get on edge is to go out in a situation and play a song that you don't know as well or you don't feel as confident about. Like that's really exhilarating. And in some ways I think that translates in a performance and in how people see you. Um 
on the other hand, it's not, I don't think I'm lazy when it comes to performing, but on the other hand, when you know you can do something well every time and you know it works, then there's a, there's a certain impulse to kind of gravitate towards that, yeah. you know? I mean, for instance, now, like I'm playing live and I've got all these new songs and in some cases I've never played them live, you know? And it's exhilarating. It's, it's exciting, you know? But uh, there's always this pull of like, well, you know these so- other songs really well and you know that some people like them and you know you can pull them off. Yeah, so I mean, it's an extension, I suppose, of a comedian telling the same joke every night and just knowing that if things are going badly, they can pull that out of their back pocket and it, uh, it will always work. I mean, you might have that experience with a kind of a certain kind of uh, banter, right? Like there might be some way. I mean, is that something that you kind of have worked out as well? Like that kind of. No, I. I mean, I really try not to repeat myself, um, and the end result of that is that I often end up just really going out on a limb and somewhat embarrassing myself. But but one thing I learned, actually, I noticed early on is that it's really easy to go the sort of self-effacement route, you know? Yeah. And I think you get this very mild kind of pity reaction to it. Like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Or I don't know what I'm saying. And I, so I really try to stay away from that. But I've also really tried to stay away from repeating myself because I, I, I always think back to going to see George Jones a couple times in a row over the course of like two years and, you know, he sort of said the exact same things, like two years apart in the same city. And I don't mean that to be critical. I mean, he was on the road for 60 or 70 years. But yeah. there was a naive part of me that was like, ah, I thought when he said it last time, he was saying it because he was here, you know? Oh, no, so, like, totally. Like, I when I used to tape comedians. Like, if I, I when I was a kid, I was a huge Dennis Miller fan. And so when he was on, oh, yeah. when he was on different talk shows, I would just tape. Like, if I knew he was going to be on, I would just tape it and then watch it the next day or whatever. And then, yeah, it was soul-crushing to, to realize that he was just saying the same stuff to Letterman that he was saying to uh, whoever, Arsenio, or whoever else. I guess he wasn't on Arsenio. They had a feud. But you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> he would yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. make the rounds saying the same jokes. And that was the first time it occurred to me that... Because you hold, you hold kind of um, spoken word and banter and comedians to a different standard uh, than you do musicians it's not as uh, crazy to think that oh they're playing the same song every night for some reason when a comedian hits you with a joke what, what at least when i was a kid it just seemed like oh i'd never heard that before and then the mm-hmm. idea that they would just say it to other people i felt kind of like cheated or something but they're like i mean it is kind of like songs right it's like timing and delivery and they feel like some nights it really hits and some nights it really misses yeah you know like that seinfeld comedian movie where he talks about how how long it took him to get 90 minutes of good material yeah 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 you know yeah. and then once you got that material you're going to hold on to that and tour it you know um and then there's like neil hamburger like punchline driven <laughs> jokes where i know all his jokes when i go and see him yeah but it's just so not the point and that's something i didn't get about him until i went and saw him is how hilarious the setups are yeah yeah you know? yeah like you don't even need to hear the punchline and everyone's kind of laughing more at the setup question you know than they are at the punchline in a way yeah it's true yeah. the punchline is just a devastating assault of offensiveness but you know that the premise is what's actual like the actual question <laughs> is already funny yeah he's uh he's pretty ingenious that way there's also <laughs> like there's also like for, uh, by the before i go on are your pipes frozen is someone trying to dig you out of something there's like a crazy clanging i, going I on. know i just closed the door we're actually uh we're working on my uh my house oh who's we well i am doing it and an amazing guitar player who lives across the street named Gord Tuff, who plays guitar with Kathleen Edwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just did his whole house, and now him and I are working. So 
the aside from the fact that it's nice to be on this podcast, it also means I don't have to be working for it. <laughs> you so little, let's just carry this on. Take a little bit of a break. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's cool. I, did, I thought is was Gordon not in Peterborough for a while or? His just... brother. Oh, is, Dave. Is, Dave Tuff. That's what it is. is. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's in Peterborough. Yeah. Okay. I thought Gord was there too for some reason. All right. I know Dave quite well, actually. Um, you do? I used to play in a like sort of bluegrass jam with him in the late '90s. Oh. Like several. Yeah. What was the What was the group called? Well, it wasn't really. We just kind of got together. We I mean, we I think we played here and there, but we never really had a band name. I think we called ourselves the Quartha Strings at one point. Oh, okay, like a, a marketing ploy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dave spent uh, Dave Tuff spent a lot of time in Guelph, so uh, he used to. Yeah, he's played. Oh, the, of course, yeah. Yeah, he played in a band uh, for quite a while called the uh, Hubble Bunk, um, or maybe they had become the Hubble by that point. Anyway, a really great kind of post punk uh, rock band, and uh, and then yeah, he's. Got a little banjo outfit out in Peterborough right now, too. Bluegrass. Uh, and I heard he just finished his PhD as well. Yeah, he's been working on that. Congratulations, Dave. Yeah, this is great. This is great for Dave. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of uh, musicians and, and musical highlights, I mentioned in the intro that you've got this amazing uh, guest list, uh, array of amazing people on, on, your, on your new record. Can you talk a little bit about... Uh, how this came to be and why that that might have been your approach to kind of no and I mean this I don't mean this in any kind of disparaging way but you've really stacked this album mm-hmm. and uh like I can't get over like this the the just the history of people like there's connections to Bonnie Prince Billy and the band and and you know it's Arcade Fire and like Blue Rodeo it's just it's, it's like a really amazing musical lineage that is part of your record can you talk a little bit about uh, how these people came together and why you wanted all these folks on there? I mean, it's like, it's kind of one of the biggest enjoyments for me in terms of setting up recordings, you know? Um, like, I really, truly am just having fun putting those sessions together and trying to get those people. And uh, I sort of feel like that's one of the real payoffs for me, you know? And so when there's an opportunity, then I'm always going to pursue it. And each one is kind of an individual connection. Like, I... I got to open for uh, for Bonnie Vare down in New York one time, and I just met Colin on the stairs, you know, and said hi for a minute. And then I just kind of telephoned him. <laughs> I think I emailed him out of the blue like a year later. And then actually one person who's been really important for me uh, is Basil Donovan, who plays with me, and he supports a lot of younger bands and younger musicians like myself, and he's so supportive. And that extends to helping to get us go out and tour with the Jim Cuddy band and he comes and plays all my shows when he can. And he, for instance, hooked me up with all kinds of people. Like he was the one who put me in touch with Mary Margaret O'Hara. Oh, wow. And, um, and again, it was kind of like he knew her and I just sort of called her out of the blue. And again, she was just, she was up for it, you know? So, I mean, it's, I, I, I just think it's sort of like just good fortune. And, and, you know, once you get into music, I mean, you know this too, like the, the, the circles get pretty small, yeah, right? Yeah. But you're bound to, to orbit with these people. So it's not that hard to connect with them, you know? Oh, yeah. Totally. And, I mean, just to, uh, and I, I don't know why I'm revealing this here, but I, I actually emailed Mary Margaret O'Hara today. Just to ask her. Oh, really? Yeah, I asked her about it. I wanted to see if she'll be on, uh, like do an interview with me in front of people. Uh, uh, she's lovely. Yeah, she's I know. I, she's the best, and I've had so many interesting interactions with her, uh, both as an audience member and just sort of briefly meeting her. Uh, and she's uh, she's like a hero. Like she's just an amazing force, and uh, it's pretty amazing that she's on your record. And she's great. Did you see? Uh, did you see Museum Hours? 
No, I didn't see the. This is the film. Yeah, that she's like one of the main actors in this film. It came out last summer. It's a great movie, and she sings in it these beautiful songs. So. Yeah, this is a film by Jem Cohen, right? I be- yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Jem, I saw her perform uh, as part of. Uh, Jem Cohen is an amazing filmmaker, and he's worked with Vic Chestnut and Fugazi and a bunch of great people. And he uh, had this project called "We Have an Anchor," where uh, a live band uh, scored this uh, these these film he made this film basically about um, new brunswick and um oh wow yeah it's crazy and so like for two nights uh was it last year i can't remember but for two nights at tiff lightbox you could see um this film and the people scoring it were uh gee from fugazi jim white of the dirty three members Mm -hmm. of silver mount zion and godspeed you black emperor uh and uh and mary margaret o'hara among others wow it was crazy and i went i went you know i live in guelph and i was feeling terrible but i went I just realized it was a really rare... You had to see that. I went both nights, and the second night was actually better than the first. It was quite different in, in their own way, in its own way. So, Well, that's something I find interesting about her, though, is that like since I did this recording and some people have asked me about it, like you know, and they're like, you know, where has she been all this time? And she has this whole lore, you know, that, oh, she just vanished from the face of the earth. Yeah. And, when, and then you start to hear about all the things that she's doing and done, and it's amazing. Oh, you know? no. I mean, like, I, I went to see Bonnie Prince Billy play at the Queen Elizabeth Theater in Toronto, and he, he brought her up. To do uh, for that John Prine tune, yeah, it kind of was a no offense to anyone involved. It was a vague train wreck. Like it didn't quite work. <laughs> she kind of bailed on it, basically. Like he was really excited. I could tell. Uh, Will Will Oldham, and uh, but yeah, she was just like I can't remember the words, and she just did her Mary Margaret O'Hara thing, if you will, which is. But it but it was memorable. I mean, I agree with you. It was not probably how it was supposed to go, but it was still so interesting. To yeah, watch, yeah, you know? it was amazing to watch, and I love that show. Yeah. And uh, that's actually the first time I met her was was there. Oh, you met her that night. Yeah, yeah, just very briefly. Are you and were you, are you friends? You you seem to go back with Emmett Kelly. Is that how that may have worked out? Well, or? I did. Um, I used to have a. I was used to be part of a duo called Dark Hand and Lamplight mm-hmm. with Sherry Boyle, Canadian artist. Yeah, she's and, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and so we did, a, a, um, like I played music and she did sort of performance art with overhead projection and so on. Sherry's, and a, we, Sherry's like a, just so people, sorry, I like to contextualize everything. Sherry Boyle is this amazing visual artist and yeah, she has this uh, kind of projection, like overhead projection thing that she's done with Christine Fellows where like a band will be playing and, and I assume she did something similar for you where... Yeah, it's incredible. It's just, it's like nothing else. And when And when it's in front of an audience, people are just, they're just shocked and stunned by it so it's a really amazing thing and she also just was the canadian artist at the the biennale so you know like yeah. a really but anyway we um uh so we got well actually she got invited to go and open for uh, bonnie prince billy uh-huh. and so we went as that duo and that's when i sort of found out about Emmett. and i mean i love guitar playing i love guitar players and he <laughs> is phenomenal so i guess I'd, I'd kind of, you know, he's. I've always thought of him, and it never really would have occurred to me to work with any guitar player because I do play a lot of guitar, mm-hmm. and but in my albums I tend to have very specific parts. So it occurred to me this time that it would be awesome to have someone just, you know, doing what they will on a lead guitar. And again, I just kind of asked him, and I was like, you know, this is a little weird, but you'd fly to Toronto and we'd record for a few days, and he was up for it. So yeah, no, he seems like a very nice guy. I've had a chance to. He meet really him. is. Yeah, yeah, I've had a chance to meet him as well. All right, well that. Um were there, were there particular highlights about this? So you've got this stacked guest list. You've got people kind of coming and going. You you were saying earlier that you just like the kind of you were basically 
enjoying the production process? Because as a producer, this is what you were doing. You were piecing all of the, you know, you were getting people together and figuring out parts and all that. Were, were there, was there a particular uh, recording or collaborative highlight for you from this, uh, from for the, from these sessions? Well, the whole process of like one of the hardest things I did that started all this off was was we got permission to use Glenn Gould's piano, which is in Ottawa at the NAC. And this is like his most treasured Steinway from the bulk of his career. And we had to go through this pretty long process with like the government and all this to get permission to use it. And I had a lot of amazing help from different people. And that whole project, which then involved um, going and getting this crazy tape machine that we borrowed from Hoxley Workman, like way up north of Toronto. And then we like strapped it to my car and drove it to Ottawa and then Garth Hudson and his wife Maud came up from Woodstock. So it was just, you know, and we essentially were just recording two songs, you know. And I just, I kind of, it was so stressful at the time, but I really loved the the chaos of it. And I already could tell it was just going to be like an indelible memory, even as it was unfolding in this kind of really exhausting way. And so that was that was a real highlight for me was... It was just such a singular event, you know, and it really came down to all this work and all this arranging and all this traveling. And then it just came down to like four or five hours working in the dead of winter in the middle of the night in this giant lobby recording these tunes, you know, and and that that was a real highlight for me. That was amazing. I mean, obviously, there's an historical significance to using this instrument, but mm-hmm. it sounds like a real like rigmarole to do all this what what actually was it purely the historical significance that me I mean, and, and plus you've got garth hudson of the band like there's too many there's that's a lot of stuff going on uh yeah <laughs> and it sounds very complicated and potentially like you know sonically does it make a difference to go and use glenn gould's piano or are you just doing it because holy holy cow it's glenn gould's piano yeah sonically i i don't think it's necessarily the, the most obvious choice I just I really like a challenge, you know, and and I really like a challenge when people when people tell you you can't do something, you know, it's like I, I can be a pretty lackadaisical guy. But when someone says no or that can't be done, you know, that's like my those are my go words, I guess. Yeah. Okay. And and I think it also I was having a hard time imagining how I was going to start this recording. And I think I was thinking, well, I'm going to make this framework and then we're going to follow this through. And I knew that wasn't going to work, you know like having some sort of vision and then trying to stick to the the points. So I think this was a kind of a whim, but it was also a way to focus on something else. Yeah. And it's funny, like I've worked with Garth and I've been so fortunate to have like three other occasions to work with them or four. And it's always like so challenging and so chaotic. And there's this kind of point where you get to the end and you're just like this exasperated sigh, you know, and then like a week later, you're like, man, that was amazing. I got to do that again. <laughs> and so I knew, you know, I knew that it was going to be cool. I didn't have any doubt about that. I knew that the fact that we were doing all this stuff and the fact that it was that piano. And it was- if you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? 
Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Him. I don't know what it was going to be, but I knew it was going to be good, at least for me. Yeah, well, he's a true genius. So, that I mean, that, that, I, I, yeah, that's amazing. I'm a huge, you know, I named my son Levon. Did you know that? No, yeah, that's my, amazing. My kid's name's Levon. He's named after Levon Helm. I don't mind telling you that. And That's uh, a nice name. It's a good name, too. It works for, my wife is uh, Michelle. I got some V in me. I'm V, so we got like a, yeah. we got a little leave on. I don't know. It worked that well. Anyway, my point is I'm a fan of the band. I, I yeah. I used to hesitate saying I named my kid after someone a musician, particularly because I'm a drummer. So people, everyone was just like, "That is the corniest." <laughs> Anyone who knew me is like, "Really? What? 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 You're gonna name him Ludwig? Like, what are you gonna?" I was like, "No, I just thought it was a nice name. I think, and you know, it's a good name. And so anyway, it is a good name. And it's like, yeah, he's kind of the." He he has a very specific character in that band, which is really noble and and you know something to want to see in your kid or or maybe even for your kid to aspire to. Yeah, it had nothing really to do with uh, the musician thing. Was totally like the cheesy kind of music writer fan <laughs> musician naming his kid after another musician never even occurred to me. I just think of him as a an admirable. I always thought of him as this truly admirable guy. Exactly, and, and that's basically. And it's just a strong name. Like he just seemed like such a strong man, and uh, that's all it was. Anyway, the well, point- it makes sense to me in, in the in the sense that like, you know, the things that you want your child to be as a parent, like you have to see those things in them in some ways, you know. And this is a nice way for like this is a nice ongoing process. So yeah, no, I for think sure. it's I think it's a great a great plan. Oh, thanks. I appreciate. It. I'm glad I have your your blessing and your. No, it's good. I actually, it's nice to have backup on it because sometimes you feel a little self conscious about your decisions and uh, uh, and and I I don't I don't really think about it anymore. But I guess the point here is that I have an affinity for the band the way uh, you clearly do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, um, I want to ask you about uh, your your entry, your participation and contribution to what is ostensibly a music tradition. You know, you're you're mm-hmm. uh, you you have a voice that evokes. I was thinking about. I was listening to the new record, and you know, I'm a fan of yours for sure. But there's this curious temporal space you occupy, where you are making a music that is timeless yet completely of a time. Does that make sense to mm-hmm. you? I understand what you mean. I don't necessarily identify with that myself, but I understand what you mean. Yeah. Well, particularly on this record, like I hear, I hear more like late sixties, early seventies, Dylan in your voice. I hear like, uh, and, and I mean, and, and, and just the kind of arrangement uh, ideas, maybe, I haven't listened to it enough, and I'm I'm reducing it. And I know this is the kind of stuff that probably makes you uncomfortable, as we alluded to earlier. But there there is this curious. Do you, do you see what I mean? Like if if we were to put your record, if we were to take all your records, Doug, and bury them. Let's just do that for fun, anyway. <laughs> and then, I like this. <laughs> and then someone, you know, 150 years from now, dug them up. Yeah. Uh, what would they? Where would they think they were from? And and I mean. 
this is true of lots of music, obviously, and I don't know, but but I mean, yours is particular. You are, will you admit that you're kind of part of a tradition, a timeline almost? I, I definitely will as a listener, you know, and I think my position on it creatively is that you don't have control over that as a music maker, you know? I just don't think, and, I, and the reason why I, I feel that, and I feel it's important to say that, is because I think in the last five years or maybe more, there has been this move afoot to actually try and get into these eras and get into these sounds with specific equipment and specific things. And I, I just do not believe that at least I can do that. I know that I can't do that. Hmm. So I don't identify with it in terms of something I'm trying to do creatively. But I mean, my, you know, my music collection is heavily tilting quite a ways back, you know. Uh, and that's the stuff I grew up listening to. I missed out on so much contemporary music as a young person because I just got so hung up on you know, like New Morning. I mean, I love that album. John Wesley Harding, as a young person, I just, you know, people talked about how they discovered punk and they got into Led Zeppelin. And I feel kind of lame because I just missed the boat on all of that stuff. I really did. Well, when did you, can you kind of identify the turn? Like, were you at a point where, were you ever like a metalhead or something? And then all of a sudden you discovered something that uh, that surprised you? Like, was there a point where this kind of occurred in your, in your life? No, I've always been like, uh, like... I don't know how you say like almost like excessively laid back in those kind of angst departments. I just don't think I connect to music that way. Hmm. You know, like if I go, like when I used to go to the Y and there's, and there's that energy music, people are working out, like you walk by the gym yeah, and it's like people that need energy for music or that need that kind of mirror representation of music. I've never really identified with that. So I don't think I ever was reaching into it for that. Um, I mean, I played like the first one. I, I grew up in Toronto and the first times I ever played, like got gigs, I played in a reggae band and I was 16. I was still in high school and the rest of the guys in the band were all in their 30s and 40s and they were from, you know, Trinidad and Guyana and Jamaica and stuff. And, oh. and I got really into reggae. And when I look back on it, I thought, you know, it's kind of funny for, you know, an upper middle class kid from Toronto to identify with that music. And one of the ways I could think about it was, you know, I was going through puberty, you know. I had no social or cultural revolutions to attach myself to, but I had like a physiological one happening, you mm. know. And maybe that's why I connected so much with this struggle that my life and my world had nothing to do with, you know. Wow. Huh. So that was maybe as much of a divergence as as I ever had, but um well, except that I didn't it- go through some rebellious stage with uh with another genre or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, the, we've all kind of come to re- recognize that uh, reggae and country have um, many things in common. I mean, in terms of um, stylistically, I, I mean, I, if you listen to kind of early reggae, I think some of it was borrowing from uh, old school kind of country parts. I mean, Oh, yeah. Peter Tosh singing Little Green Apples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, and, and you can hear... I mean, when I listen to like Hank Williams's band, I mean, I certainly hear a jazz. I can see the connection to jazz, but then when you listen to early, I don't know, music by the Whalers or something, mm-hmm. you, you kind of hear like. And I think this is actually true. I think, from what I understand of reggae and its early inception, a lot of them, a lot of the people making that music were were listening to whatever they could from yeah. foreign soils, and often it was country music, and yeah. they just obviously. Uh, adapted it aesthetically into something else. So anyway, that my point is, and and I wasn't very clear about it, and I probably made a bunch of inaccurate statements just now. But <laughs> but I do think no, no, I I think you're right. You're going with it. Yeah, I mean, and I guess the obvious uh, sort of uh, bridge between those two worlds in a broad sense might be Willie Nelson. 
Yeah, or who's that guy? That, have you seen that guy who recently his drummer is is a Jamaican guy? He's a really he's a huge country star, like oh. Tim McGraw type guy, uh-huh. and he just recorded a single down in Jamaica. Anyway, sure, Willie Nelson's another one. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, Willie, I think, is one of the first people. I don't know, maybe Keith Richards too. Like, there's just a few people oh, that. Kenny are like, Chesney, sorry, that's his name. Kenny you Chesney. should check this out. The Kenny Chesney video filmed in Jamaica with Seiko and Family Man from the Whalers. Really? You got to you got to watch that this afternoon. It's it's very interesting. Okay. All right. Well, I, yeah. my, I guess my and, my loose point is that I I can kind of, and maybe you can see it too. Like maybe there is a connection between sixteen year old reggae playing Doug Paisley and where you are now somehow I mean <laughs> it's maybe a little tenuous but it's well it's, one thing that I that was great and this is like a technical detail really but when I was 16 and I'd already been playing guitar for like five years and I joined this reggae band I was like amazing I'm gonna be Junior Marvin I'm gonna like play amazing solos <laughs> over everything uh-huh you know and then the guy in the band who was kind of like one of my musical like you know teachers in a way he's like no 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 <laughs> you go chink Chink, uh-huh. chink, and that's your role, and that's your role from when you get on stage. It was like Mr. Miyagi, you know. It's like <laughs> this is what you do, and and that was really good. That was discipline, right? And and in a sense, it's like you're serving a rhythm, and 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 you're serving a rhythm maybe for a more meaningful way than just dancing, say, because it's you know it's it's very spiritual music, and yeah. I mean if you look at how huge um, Dolly Parton and and Don Williams are in Africa. Or like I actually have been down to Kingston, Jamaica a couple times and we like I go down there for these long guitar sessions with a with a friend of mine. And it's like all these really tough guys and like some pretty serious musicians. And and I remember one time I started playing the gambler like at the end of the night. And man, people just, you know, people just shut up. They just love that song huh. so much. Huh. So. So, yeah, there are I don't know if I've ever really been able to I don't know if I could sort of draw them out right now but there are definitely connections yeah sure. and I, again you're doing you're already doing a better job of it than i did i was pretty clumsy there but i know i know there are some and if people want they can google them <laughs> i i'm sorry i'm not doing <laughs> kenny chesney kenny chesney for sure <laughs> we'll google that you mentioned that you're uh you you're you come from an upper middle class uh background in toronto what did your what did your parents do uh my parents my dad worked for the ontario government and my mom was a was a family physician Okay, and was there music in the house a lot of the time, or does this? Yeah, um, I mean, we were brought up like piano lessons from an early age, lots of instruments at home, and 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 you know, I think there were much more uh, music programming in schools back then. Mm-hmm. My dad's side, my dad played the piano by ear a lot, so he you know he could sit down and play anything. And then his side of the family, uh, his mother, my grandmother, was an amazing sight reader. Like she could, you could give her the most complicated score of Bach or something, and she could just sit down and play it. And then my grandfather, uh, my my dad's dad, he played those giant harmonicas you see sometimes. Uh-huh. And I've actually seen films of him playing it, and it's incredible. It's like an accordion solo. So so no aspirations at all for professional music or a career, but but very musical people for sure. Do you have? Um, uh, did you ever have like a fallback plan? Is this always something that you were going to do? I actually always I always wanted to be a writer by the time I was 30 and if I didn't make it I was going to become a vet because of James Harriet. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> did you actually pursue that as like a foundational backup plan or did you just were you just waiting? Waiting I definitely out. I mean I definitely was was writing and trying to be a writer and I know Margaret Atwood has scorn for these people who want to become writers yeah, as yeah. opposed to just writing but I was kind of like that I really wanted to be a writer and I've got boxes of you know 
brilliant short story openings that I wrote. So it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to just get going uh, for for some people. Uh, I guess the people that really break through are the people that uh, get over that obstacle early and just go. Um, well, well, I think early on, music is a lot more socially gratifying and, and fun. You is know, it, is it because there's an audience or there's a camaraderie with people? Like writing is very solitary. Uh, yeah. The audience is important, but I, I think it's really, it's more the community of musicians. Right. You know, I mean, if I look all over the world at the experiences I've had and the friends I have, it, music is the passport for all of it. It's, it just, sometimes it amazes me when I when I go through my personal Google Plus or whatever and realize that all those people, it's all through music. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. No, I'm, the, I'm kind of, I'm the same way. Even though I haven't mm-hmm. any talent to speak of, I seem to have uh, insinuated myself into this world as well. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it is interesting how, as you were saying earlier, it's a very it becomes a small community um, musician somehow. Like it's a tight knit mm-hmm. kind of group. It's it's, it's quite interesting. Um, you know, people listening to your new album for the first time, um, or even just going through the track list, will 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 notice the the word love shows up a lot um and love songs some people would there's an argument that like how many more love songs do there need to be <laughs> i thought what? paul mccartney already answered that uh, oh yeah that, that's exactly <laughs> they're all silly right there's so many love silly love songs but do you have uh are you ever hesitant to enter you know submit your own love songs into a world full of love songs no, no, I really am not. I think it's like, I think a lot of music is, you know, whether it's because it's all mating calls or or from from songbirds or whatever it is. No, I, uh, I think it's. I just I'm always sort of drawn to it when I'm when I'm singing and, and playing songs. Is this drawn from your own kind of? Are, are they stories drawn from your own life, or are they? Uh, are you are you falling into patterns of of love songs that have worked before? Like, I mean, there's. Obviously, an arc to a love song, uh, maybe more than well. There, there are feelings and, and emotions that fuel them that come from my own life, but they aren't necessarily stories from my own life. I mean, they're uh, it, it's you know it, it, it's something to sort of draw near to or, or to connect to. But um, the for me, the songwriting is much more technical, and it and it has all kinds of its own. It has all sorts of its own requirements and. Uh, and so in a lot of cases, th- those feelings are emotions that you can connect to that you've had in the past. So you have a memory of them or you can still conjure them just by thinking about them. Um, those are some of the things that carry th- me through this technical process hmm. of songwriting. Okay. So the idea of you're not you're not averse to any um, or rather impacted maybe by any stereotypes or, or cliche. I, I mean, that's the thing. Love songs. If they're if you're not careful, they can you can enter the realm of cliche. I think you're very thoughtfully avoiding that, but uh, that that is the trap of of a love song, right? Like how do I how do I contribute to this? Because as you say, like love songs have existed forever, uh, mm-hmm. and they're always going to be there. It seems. Uh, yeah. But how do you how do you avoid falling into kind of easy traps? Well, I think way more than I'm a player or at least a composer, I'm a listener, you know? And I think anyone who listens long enough is essentially a music critic, right? I mean, you're critical of what you listen to. It's yeah. how you choose to listen. And so I think we all have that that criticism and that perspective in our mind. And, you know, I think that's maybe the most important thing about most songwriters and is 
is how they apply that to their own work, right? So, so yeah, you're not you're not stumbling through it, you know, tripping through the tulips or whatever it is. Like you're always checking and saying, wait a second, like, you know, and it's not like you're walking a line. How far can I go before people are just going to barf? You know, I mean, you're. I guess the way I feel, it may sound a little bit hokey, but I if if I feel it, you know, then I don't worry about whether it's cheesy or not. Right. If I know that I have a real feeling about it, I guess it's sort of like an instinct. Then I don't worry. I don't care if other people think it's gone too far right. or, or too mushy. I mean, the, the thing about your practice is that so many things can influence and impact a song. I mean, so many factors uh, from around your immediate atmosphere. I mean, you're you're someone who's born and raised in Toronto, and the, your city has been um, in the spotlight potentially for a lot of wrong reasons recently. Um, how are you feeling about being a citizen in Toronto? Uh, how has the environment impacted you in terms of uh, what you do? Well, I mean, I, I'm a little bit sad in the sense that I, I really love Toronto, you know? I mean, I think about moving away all the time just to get out of city life. But but I do love the city, and I, and I feel like a lot of, because I am sort of a nostalgic person inherently, a lot of what I love about it, I feel was much more present like 20 years ago. And I do feel like it's slipping away a little bit. I mean, it's funny now when I go to Hamilton, which is a smallish city outside Toronto, I feel like, hey, this is the Toronto I grew up in, you know, so can you I'm a little bit can you kind of hone in on that and identify that that kind of um, feeling that vibe that you're uh, you're talking about? I just, it's like a quality of life thing, you know, it's like really nice parks and really nice public pools and all these nice old apartment buildings where, where people could have a nice job and afford to live there. And, and it, it it's not so polarized, you know, as, as some cities more than Toronto have become where things are very expensive or things are very special. You know, it's like, if I want to go to the top of the street now and, and get a sandwich, like anyone should be able to get a sandwich at lunchtime. It's like I can get an amazing sandwich for like $19, you know. <laughs> and I just think there was a time when in a good way we sort of took that for granted, you know. And yeah. and I think it, it, that sort of quality of life thing, I don't think Toronto's losing it necessarily. And I think the fact that Toronto's growing so much can be a good thing. Hmm. But I don't know. I think a lot of it is just the, the language of politics now. It just – this whole – you know, just people seem they're so interested in, in being partisan and being divided on so many things, you know. And and so the fact that all these things are happening with the mayor or happening and everyone's like, well, because I'm on this side, I don't care what happens. I'll always be on this side, you know. And then every, there's so little dialogue, you know, and that's not really something about the city of Toronto. That's happening everywhere. But I am a little bit sad that I, I see more and more of that in, in my city. I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but we were just talking about love songs. Do you feel like your city is slightly bereft of love at the moment because you mentioned Hamilton and everyone's talking about Hamilton. Uh, everyone I talk to about places to live in this in this sort of region that we're in is like, I don't know, Hamilton seems like a great place to be. And a lot of it is driven by uh, the passion of its citizens. And Toronto gets a rap for being kind of apathetic, uh, maybe indifferent or oblivious to things going on around it, you know, very self-interested. And some of that sort of, I don't know if, there, if that that aspersion kind of suggests that maybe there's a lack of love, and, and and when you talk about partisan partisanship, that you know, again, I'm being kind of hokey now, but there is this feeling of like unwillingness to get along, and um, and I can't. It's very severe. It seems extremely severe. Yeah, it's there's it's such a slippery topic. I mean, I feel like some of the cities I've gone to that I really like like London and New York. I mean, it's easy to sort of 
you know, glamorize these bigger cosmopolitan places. But I feel like there's something that everyone can look towards and be proud of being a part of or like about it, you know, yeah. and that is hard to define. But I feel like people in Toronto are maybe a little bit divided about on exactly what that is, you know. Mm -hmm. And I mean, anywhere where there's more money. I mean, there's a lot of money in Toronto. There's a lot of work opportunities for, for many people, you know. And, and that's pushing certain things out of the reach of a lot of other people. And I think where there's a lot of that kind of stuff, I think you're right. It, they, those things aren't necessarily the progenitors of love and love songs, you know. Yeah, like it's, they're, they're a whole other thing. It's a competition more than a kind of uh, collective uh, sense of what what can we build together. It's more like how can I distinguish myself from these other people or whatever, or these other. Yeah, ideas. you need time and and space to do really interesting and and beautiful things, and and often they're not very rational. You know, I mean, I think what I do is really irrational in so many ways. <laughs> Honestly, I th I think that you know, huh. like you you know, in terms of how my parents might see my work, like we were talking about before, or. You know how I go about things. There's no logic to it, and an accountant or a manager manager can look at it and be like, "Man, this just makes no sense." You know, yeah, yeah. but it sort of has to be that way. And I think that a, a city and and that kind of activity. I mean, I'm not you know I'm not going to be the one to say it as eloquently as you know Jane Jacobs or all kinds of people have said. But you do need that space, and I think people do feel that that is being pushed out of Toronto. And then other people would say, well, that's the price of prosperity. And there's a lot of great, interesting cities in Canada where nothing's going on and, and everyone's leaving. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean... I feel like you and I are not going to solve this problem on this podcast, but I <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your thoughts on it. Uh, Doug, uh, what, what's coming up next uh, for you? I Your your website, by the way, is quite spare. I, I noticed there was a little link to the record. I don't know if you've got tour dates uh, coming up. I know you were just in... I think you were just in New York not too long ago, but what, what, what's what's coming up next for you? Well, I'm hoping that I will be touring in sort of March, April, probably mostly in the States. Mm -hmm. And then I hope I'll be touring in Canada in the summer and the fall. Um, it's always tricky to pull these things together. So I just, I really hope it comes together because I love performing and I've actually never played with a band. And the last few times I've gone out and played, I've been playing with a band and I'm really excited to to do more of that. So that's my... That's how I see the next year is, is going out and doing some touring and really developing, particularly these new songs with a with a bigger sound and with more musicians. Are you uh, you you've been you're an artist that's been really embraced in America potentially by by more uh, significant outlets than I'm I'm uh, generalizing here and I can't say that I know exactly who has embraced you per se here in Canada, but um, it does seem like uh, media in the states and, and an audience in the states is really gravitating towards you. Is that fair? Yeah, it's th that is the case. I mean, I, I think a lot of that is simply because the first time I ever had an opportunity to, to record was with an, a U.S. label. Mm. They sort of reached out to me and said, "Hey, do you want to do an album?" And and you know, the result of that is that I've done I've done more touring down there, and they've done more publicity work down there. Right. Uh, I think that's a big a, a big reason for that. And 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 then Canada has always felt like a bit of a catch up by comparison. And then of course that fits into this really popular mythology, you know, you have to be recognized somewhere else and and we don't recognize our own and I I don't know. I I've you know like when I went and did that this tour with the Jim Cuddy band where we played like every city in Canada and I just saw how supportive and amazing those fans were, you know. And it really is here in Canada. So I don't think that's entirely true, but I do think it's a more nuanced um musical world here um i mean it's a smaller population so there's only so much momentum it's a smaller population than the states for one thing 
And then mm-hmm. there's within that, there's a smaller music audience. I mean, that's just the logic yeah. of it. So there's, yeah. it's just more difficult to pick up the momentum you would uh, as opposed to what you can get in the States. And I think that's just the facts. And yet when you, you know, like I've, I just read both of Stomping Tom Connors autobiographies and you read the, the latter one, uh, the Connors tone, and you look at his tour schedule. I mean, every Canadian musician would just be so envious of that in the sense that he can go, he can play, you know, five shows in a row in Cape Breton Island, you know, he could do a Nova Scotia tour. Yeah. And I mean, granted, they might be legions, they might be smaller venues, but there is a way to do that. And and I think it's probably not a coincidence that there's some connection between that and his sort of being adamant about being a Canadian artist and not being a border jumper and developing this world, you know, because you can do it. Yeah. And I mean, that would be a dream for me. I would love to be able to go and do a two week tour of New Brunswick or something. You know, I just think it'd be so cool if you if you had a show or you had music or an audience where you, you could you could do that. Yeah, because it, it tends to be Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary. You know, it's it's these long stretches. Yeah, it's curious to me when someone, I I, I mean, I always assume that when someone like you or Stomp and Tom makes something, um, they didn't want there to be a limit to its audience or or a ceiling, um, or maybe even. Um, just settling for something. I mean, there's something mm-hmm. about the kind of provincial discussion of just being a Canadian artist for Canadians that I always find problematic. Um, it just seems... Like- I Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think his books are a really interesting read, especially the first one, Before the Fame. And he goes into this at great length. And I mean, generally speaking, I totally agree with you in the sense that I'm, I'm not... My music is not nationalistic in any way, right? There's, there's nothing about my music that should connect more with a Canadian than with someone from anywhere else in the world. And to that end, I'm not really serving any sort of national cause by playing more in Canada or, or more somewhere else. Yeah, like... But, yeah. No, I, but I mean, contributing to the Canadian songbook, which, you know, he did in such an amazing way. I mean, I think that is a nice goal. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it's a good thing to keep in mind. Like, why do so many people connect with those tunes? And, you know, and his question, like, why can't we have our, our songbook? And and he's so passionate about it. And if nothing else, you know, you really get you really get into his passion. No, I have it. the utmost respect and uh, for him. And uh, I know he was a trailblazer in that sense and sort of... Uh, passing on that mentality to younger younger generation of of artists who uh felt marginalized as a canadians uh making mm-hmm. music like where is our tradition and all that sort of stuff and and his sort of trailblazing of like well we can start our own and we have and and we should be proud of that and that's all well and good but any case this is probably a longer conversation and i, <laughs> I and, and it's already been a great one i doug i, I appreciate uh, chatting with you uh, oh i meant to ask also um i know you're just on promoting this brand new record strong feelings but are you already uh, plotting a, a new recording or new release for i know record store day is coming up at some point it seems like a lot of people are getting ready for that or, do you have anything like that planned yeah yeah we have a there's a seven inch coming out on record store day and it's got a, uh, an outtake from strong feelings and um and then yeah I, you always forget this when you get into the cycle of putting out an album that it's time to make another album you know because <laughs> i mean I, I made this album a year ago so i'm actually working or not a year ago, but a while ago. So yeah. I'm I'm really working on songwriting again, and that's so exciting. I mean, that's just one of the things I love to do. Can you tell us uh, something more about this outtake, uh, the 7-inch single? Well, what's really cool about it, The um, some of the keyboards on this album are done by Jason Snyderman, who is from Toronto, and he's a 
fantastic musician, amazing keyboard player. And he plays uh, Mellotron on a couple of tracks, including this one that's coming out. And the other nice thing about it is that it is kind of like a duet with, uh, with Tamara from the Weather Station. Mm-hmm. And she has such a beautiful voice. It was yeah. so amazing singing with her, too. And so I'm excited for this tune to come out for that reason, because both his contribution and hers, it's, it's really nice. Sorry, did you give us the name of it? Uh, it's called Lies Lead to Lies. Lies Lead to Lies. Okay, cool. And you say it's a 7-inch. What's the B-side? Uh, I think the B-side is Growing Souls, which is from the album. Oh, okay. So it's a single. It's basically a single from the record with a B-side. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I guess, yeah, maybe Growing Souls is the A side. Okay, sorry. <laughs> but it's, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not too up on it, but I think, I, think, I think that's the plan. Okay, cool. And then these new songs that you're, uh, how far into uh, the new uh, project are you? Are you, do you have like a batch of songs or are you slowly writing? Yeah, no, I do. I, I, I'm starting to think about how I'm going to record them and, and, you know, what, what would be an interesting way to try and do that and, and start developing them. So hopefully I'll be working on that this summer. And I mean, I thought that about the last album. I thought it was going to be within a year and it was actually quite a long time. So well, I won't speak too soon. You're driving but, to Ottawa with like equipment strapped to your roof. Yeah, and... we had some pretty good excuses <laughs> for taking a long time. Yeah, but... I can't wait to see I'm sure it's going to be made on the moon or something. I can't, uh, <laughs> I can't wait to hear what happens. Well, once again, the new Doug Paisley album is called Strong Feelings. It's available now via No Quarter Records. And for more information about it and Doug's uh, tour dates, uh, please visit DougPaisley.com. Doug, before we leave, is there a song we can go to from this album, uh, the new album, for people to hear? Um, How about Old Times? Because I I don't hear anyone talk about that song, and I really loved that tune. So, (laughs) (laughs) You feel like it's been neglected by people? Well, I wouldn't go that far, but okay. I just—I I really, I really like it. So, okay. Yeah. How would you know if people are talking about it or not? You ignore all your press, and uh... well, no, I mean when people actually talk to my face. <laughs> <laughs> no talk- one has talked to my face about this song. No one's talked to your FaceTime about uh, the song. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Okay, so we're gonna hear old times. Is that the deal? Yeah. Okay, Doug Paisley, old times, Doug. You're an officer and a gentleman. I appreciate your uh, talking uh, with me for so long. And also, a welcome to technology. Thanks very much. Nice to talk to you, too.
Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.